Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, along with my co-host, David Blackman, and we have a wonderful show lined up for you today. We will be joined by Michael Schellenberger, who is well-known for being an environmentalist for over 30 years and uh, has wrote a book, Apocalypse Never. But first, let me tell you about the latest cover of Shell Magazine, Moda Midstream, as we caught up with all three executives that run and own Moda Midstream. We're also doing a very private Moda cover party on July 20th in Corpus Christi. If you would like to attend, please contact Aslan, that's A-S-L-A-N, at shellmag.com to secure your ticket or sponsor the event. Please also put on your calendar August 12th is our Fogo the Chow in the Woodland Mixer. If you attended our last mixer at this event, it was a sold-out crowd. I would tell you, please don't wait to get your tickets. This is a very popular venue in a very popular place. All streams are welcome as it is an all-stream mixer. Again, that date is August the 12th. It's the Teak Mixer at Fogo the Chow in the Woodlands. For more information, click on the banner at shellmag.com. And if you have ever attended our State of Energy Corpus Christi, you know that this is a sold-out event with great speakers lined up. Once again, on our sixth annual State of Energy Corpus Christi, we have done it again. We are bringing you the best lineup of speakers and panelists. It's set for August 26th in beautiful Corpus Christi. The keynote speaker will be Tracy Bentley, the CEO of the Permian Strategic Partnership. We will have a panel with Bo McCall, who is the CEO of Moda Midstream, Brian Freed, CEO of Epic Pipeline, and Nueces County Judge Barbara Canales. The moderator will be Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi. You definitely want to get your tickets now. This event sells out for the last six years. If you want information, please go to shellmag.com and click on the banner ad. It'll take you straight to the link to purchase the tickets or sponsor the event, and we will see you there. And now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. I know. We're getting so much rain that it looks so beautiful outside. It's so super, super green everywhere you look in Texas, you know, because we've just had rain everywhere in the state. Um, Let's jump on uh, talking about OPEC because, again, uh, we have some changes there. And, you know, (laughs) when they move, they shake the planet, if you will. OPEC plus cartel broke off its negotiations to add more oil and gas on the markets on Monday. So what was the source of this disagreement and what does this mean for the consumers of the energy products? Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, they had a big breakdown. So, uh, they had begun their meeting on, on July 1st and 2nd, they were supposed to finish it on the 2nd and have a new agreement, uh, in terms of monthly additions in terms of additional production on the, onto the world market. And everyone expected them to add, 400,000 barrels per day each month uh, between now and the end of the year, and uh, for a total of 2 million additional barrels per day on the market. And um, so the markets had already priced that in, and then 
the United Arab Emirates uh, said, no, we, uh, we don't agree to this and we're not happy with our quotas and blew the thing up, uh, basically, just wouldn't agree to part of what was being proposed. And so they tried to meet again on Monday after the Saudis had met with the UAE representatives over the weekend and um, hoping to get a deal in place and couldn't do it. So uh, on Monday, they adjourned and said, well, we'll deal with this all at our next meeting. And no one knows when that next meeting is going to be. So, so what it means for consumers is higher oil prices and most likely higher uh, gasoline prices at the pump, even yeah. higher than they already were. David, a question I have is, so is, is Saudi Arabia able to do anything to kind of lower the supply so we don't have this uh, standoff, if you will? Are there some solutions that they can do? Sure. Yeah, I mean, yes, they absolutely could do that, or Russia could do that if Russia was willing to. Uh, there are plenty of big, big producing countries that could try to accommodate uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates' concerns. Uh, what they want, basically, is to be able to produce another 300 to 400,000 barrels of oil per day than their current quota is. And, uh, you know, um, uh, Saudi Arabia had done, you know, voluntarily cut its own production at one point last year to accommodate Russia uh, and to get, keep the deal together and uh, certainly could do that again if they were willing to. Um, what Saudi Arabia wants in return is to extend the OPEC plus partnership, which is scheduled to expire at the end of April next year. Mm -hmm. They want to, in return for doing that, they want to expand it through the end of 2022 so that, you know, the cartel can still control the market price. Um, so it's just, you know, I hang up. I don't expect it to last okay. uh, through the end of July. I think they'll get it resolved here in the, in the next couple of weeks probably. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, prices are going to go up. But mm -hmm. what is the Biden administration doing? Uh, anything? Are they doing anything to try to slow the increase down? What's, what's Washington doing? And please, let's not say nothing <laughs> well i you know uh, they're uh next to nothing uh, you know part of the biden agenda everybody has to understand is part of the biden agenda is to make gasoline so expensive that you're forced you know to to use something other than gas-powered cars electric vehicle or hydrogen vehicle mm -hmm. they're trying to make these renewables competitive in the marketplace and 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 they're way of doing that is just to make fossil fuels more expensive. So, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned, I think, that uh, rising gasoline prices could harm the economy um, and to some extent have been talking to Saudi Arabia and the UAE about all this. But whether their heart's really in it, I don't know, because the green agenda is to just make all of this, you know, more costly for consumers. Right. And as you and I have talked about so many times, the sad part of that is it's the poor among us who That's are right. the hardest hit by that strategy. That's right. That's right. What about the negotiations with Iran uh, over renewing their nuclear deal? And uh, wouldn't that add a significant volume of oil on the market, which we, we don't need, um, if they renew that nuclear deal? Well, it could. Um, there's there's a lot of debate about how much Iran is really capable of producing in any kind of 
short period of time. They're, they're currently producing something around 2 million barrels a day. Some people think they're capable of ramping that up to as much as 6 million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty skeptical about that. I, I doubt they could add initially, you know, more than about half a million barrels a day, uh, you know, within, within a short period of time, within a few months, and it would take them years to really ramp their production up because what's happened while they've been under these sanctions is their, their national industry has deteriorated. It's like a Venezuela kind of situation where, you know, you don't use that technology, you're not using the equipment, you're not drilling the wells and, and maintaining them. And so reversing all of that is gonna take a, a good amount of time. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about what they would initially be able to add to the Mustad story. Let's switch gears and talk about the Republican Party and their new conservative climate change caucus. Um, and it's their new strategy for them to talk about, I guess, climate change as well. And mm -hmm. but it's a small amount. But what are you what are your thoughts on this? Like where what are they attempting to do? <laughs> Well, they're, they're, you know, it's a political issue. Uh, they, they have to be able to talk about climate change because that's all anybody on the Democratic side or in the media wants to talk about where energy is concerned. So, you know, this is a vehicle. Um, I think uh, the, the head Republican is, is a guy named John Curtis out of, out of Utah. Yes. Who, who formed the caucus, and it's going to be a couple of dozen members uh, of the Republicans uh, in the House of Representatives. And, you know, it just gives them a forum for coming up with ideas on how conservatives can actually engage in the ch climate change debate uh, in an intelligent way and uh, talk about these issues, uh, you know, to try to educate people on how insane some of the things the Democrats want to do really are. Um, so I think that's important. I'm, I'm glad some Republicans are doing that. Um, whether it leads to anything real substantial, of course. I mean, we've seen things like this before that don't really ever come to much. So um, it's always, you know, kind of hit and miss with the Republicans on this issue. Right. Well, I think if you're a Republican, you're, you're as a voter, you're more likely to listen to what they're saying. And my understanding of it is, is that they just want to have meaningful discussion on it, not saying that they buy into all of uh, AOC's Green New Deal and the Democrats are just kind of saying we want to have educated discussion and, and cut through the minutia of what's really real that we can look at, what is pie in the sky, and, and just kind of bring a discussion that is meaningful as opposed yeah. to scare tactics that the sky is falling kind of thing. So I think it's going to be great, too, for the Republican Party to just start having this dialogue. I think it also has a lot to do with their voter pool. You know, a lot of their sure. voters believe that climate change is real. It's on their mind. And it's one thing to just talk about it and, 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 and have a meaningful discussion. It's another to just completely ignore the topic. So I think it's going to be great. Yeah. But David, that's all the time we have for this segment. When we come back, we will be joined by Michael Schellenberger. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a veteran-owned and operated industrial construction company. Established in 2012 by co-founders Stephen Snyder and Ryan Berthold, SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals 
Corps dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today, 361-776-2662 or visit online at srtrident.com to request a bid proposal today. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, who is well-known for being an environmentalist for over 30 years and uh, has wrote a book, Apocalypse Never. But before I bring him on, I'd like to introduce that I have my co-host in studio, Mike Howard, today, CEO of Howard Energy. Mike, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. And also, David Blackman, who is the editor of Shell Magazine. David, welcome to the show. You're joining us via Zoom. I am. I am. Hope I look pretty. You do. Well, so we do have a lot of things to cover, and I'm trying to stay on topic, so please uh, bear with me as I uh, go through my notes. I think why I wanted to have Michael on was because we seem to have hit a place where we are talking so much about climate change. It's getting so scary that uh, some of the topics I hope we can cover with Michael is, you know, are we scaring our kids to death? the current rolling blackouts in California that are happening, and then also talking about this election cycle coming up and, of course, climate change and, uh, you know, fracking, if they're going to ban it, has also been on the discussion. And so as we prepare for November the 3rd, I wanted to get into those different conversations. So, guys, let's go ahead and bring on Mike Schellenberger. Mike, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks for having me, guys. So just to give our listeners a pretty decent intro without taking too much time, because uh, you have a lot that you have uh, managed to do, I just wanted to cover a few things. First of all, you are Time Magazine gave you Hero of the Environment Award. You also have gotten Green Book Award winner. You also are the founder and president of Environmental Progress. Your current book out now, which is receiving five-star reviews, is Apocalypse Never which is an extremely important book because it covers a lot of environmental stuff, as well as you've been known for environmental guru, climate change uh, guru, North American's leading public intellectual on clean energy, high priest, and your TED Talks have been reviewed more than 5 million times. You've also advised policymakers from around the world. You also have been a climate and environmentalist for over 30 years, and you recently were invited by the Governmental Panel on Climate Change for 2019 to serve as an independent expert reviewer of its next assessment report that will be due and published in 2020. 
And as a leading environmental journalist, you have also had articles in Forbes, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and of course, your TED Talks um, have been seen by more than 6 million people. Um, have I left anything out? I'm sure I have, but we have a limited time to introduce you. <laughs> I think that's fine for now. Um, and so uh, with, with that, I wanted to uh, kind of just ask you some of your reviews on your book. I, I listened to it last night. They're all five stars. Most of them are really geared at thanking you for really addressing one of the most controversial topics of our time, which is climate change. One of them was a title, The Environmentalist with Integrity. And so I wanted to start off with just asking you your opinion on, you've been in this for over 30 years, and you've kind of changed your stance on your view of uh, the environment. And with that being said, you created this book. Why did you title the book what you titled it? Apocalypse Never. Yeah, so I mean, I wrote Apocalypse Never for my, I mean, I dedicated the book to my kids, and in there, between the either one of them is fourteen and one of them is twenty-one, I was working on a book about nuclear energy, actually. And and then last year, when people started to make claims like billions of people will die from climate change, or we have ten years to act, I just felt like the conversation had gotten just really crazy and spiraled out of control, and that somebody needed to. First and foremost, just kind of separate the science from the science fiction. And so that's what I do on climate change, endangered species, plastic waste, meat consumption, deforestation, basically every major environmental issue. I just go through it and I describe what's what's real, what's not real. And then I also describe how humans save nature and talk about the importance of things like substitution, which is just, you know, the replacement of coal with natural gas, for example, or the replacement of switching from wood to LPG or to uh, nuclear, and that these acts of substitution are really the main event when it comes to saving the natural environment. Um, the other part of it is, of course, using less land to for food production in particular. And then the third part of the book is asking the question, why, if environmental problems are manageable, you know, we have real environmental problems. Um, some are very serious, uh, but they're not the end of the world. This is not the Book of Revelations. This is not the apocalypse. This is, you know, in terms of climate, it's the planet getting a couple degrees, maybe three degrees warmer over pre-industrial levels. Certainly things to worry about, but it's not you know, there's not really any scenario for us to see a return towards the kind of poverty that we escaped with fossil fuels. So that's what I wanted to address. And, um, you know, the title just felt like it needed to kind of uh, say exactly what I was saying. And so those felt like the two words that really got at it. The subtitle, as you might have mentioned, was why environmental alarmism hurts us all. And I just wanted to describe why it's a problem, this chronic exaggeration of environmental problems. I mean, it was shocking to me was how many environmental journalists who I criticize, I mean, they're really part of the problem. Most environmental journalists are activists. They are, they Mm -hmm. go into environmental journalism because they're environmental activists. So they exaggerate like activists do. But I was surprised by how many of them were like, hey, come on, Michael, isn't it okay to exaggerate a little bit in service of the cause? That's kind of the basic idea for a lot of journalists. Well, you know what, though? And I compare it to 
No, sorry, go ahead. If you are doing that and it's causing children to commit suicide, that's a, there's a problem with you too. So I'm glad that you uh, decided to take this topic on because that's exactly what's happening in many different areas of the United States and children are very much alarmed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get back on this topic and talk a little bit more, really dig into your book. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, author of his new book, Apocalypse Never. Michael, before the break, we were talking about how come you wrote the book, the title of the book. And I just, you know, wanted to thank you for writing the book and taking on this topic because I think it's a, it's a very complicated subject and something that is causing our children great anxiety. And as a mom and as a grandmother, we need to start talking about this topic, but in ways that are more healthier for their mental state. And I'm glad you dedicated your book to your children and that you're taking this topic on. If it's okay with you, I wanted to bring on my co-host, Mike, who is CEO of Howard Energy, because he has a lot of questions. We've all examined your book read your book, enjoy your book, but let's switch gears just a little bit. Mike, go ahead. Hi, Michael. Um, you know, read your book on the recommendation of one of my favorite anti-poverty, uh, I'm going to call him an activist, but he's a CEO of an energy company, Chris Wright. Uh, and and I, I really enjoy Chris's talks um, and I appreciate him, his recommendation. I'm going to recommend everybody listening uh, to buy the book. So in our industry, we hear a lot about, especially as a CEO in this industry, about a net zero goal that a lot of companies have by 2050 or sooner. And it makes us feel like our industry is going out of business. So my question, first question to you is from your perspective, you're not in the industry, you're outside the industry looking in, what is the future of oil and natural gas uh, to, to the world's energy future? Well, it's a very interesting question, and I addressed it in, at length throughout the book. I mean, one of the themes in the book is energy transitions, which is just the simple substitutions that I'm talking about. I even talk about the history of the study of energy transitions. So really among energy experts, energy scholars, historians of energy, this switch from renewables, wood and dung and water wheels and windmills to fossil fuels is just the big event of the last 250 years. I mean, this is industrialization, it's modernization, it's going from being small farmers on the brink of starvation to being the rich jet setting people that we are. Um, 
And if you think that's bad, that that industrialization is bad, then you're against fossil fuels. Um, if you recognize that your own prosperity is something that we should be grateful for <laughs> and that we don't, you know, that one out of three of our children don't die before the age of five is something we should celebrate. Right. Or that deaths from natural disasters has, has declined over 90% over the last 100 years. If you think all that's good, then you should want a high energy society. We know that the Industrial Revolution wasn't possible with renewables. It required coal in England and, and fossil fuels around the world. It also, hydro, big hydroelectric dams helped too. So then the question is how fast do these energy transitions occur and what is their character? Well, the character is clear it's a move from low power density sources to high power density sources. Power density is just how much power you're producing per hectare or acre of land. So it's just a simple environmental measure of your energy. So it's not just that there's a twice as much energy in a lump of coal as a lump of wood. It's also that a coal mine produces hundreds, maybe thousands of times more uh, energy or power in the form of heat or electricity than does a forest. And so that's why we can only have wealth, this kind of modern wealth that we enjoy thanks to fossil fuels. There's also a transition inside fossil fuels. First, it was from coal to petroleum led, of course, by, famously by Churchill and the transition to petroleum-powered ships, but then also with trains. I mean, it's interesting that in the United States, we had wood-powered trains until we until we deforested so much that it was more That's efficient right. to go to coal, whereas in Europe, they had transitioned earlier. And then, of course, we transitioned, um, so we have we transitioned eventually to electricity for trains, and um, but we're still stuck with pretty heavy oil for the ships. So then the question is, all right, what comes after petroleum and natural gas? I mean, natural gas, sorry, of course, substitutes for coal. That's what's happening in the United States. It's what's been happening around the world. It's why emissions are going down. Or clearly, for my view, I, I mean, I think most experts think that the gas age is going to last a really long time. I mean, really, the whole century, for sure. No question about it. And then you get to petroleum. We can talk about that. But you get to petroleum, and there's a lot of hype about electric cars, but they don't they don't seem to me to be obvious substitutes for petroleum. Um, there's certainly a very large group of scholars and the entire Japanese government, which is a very engineer and science-oriented government, that thinks it's going to be hydrogen that ends up replacing petroleum. But either way, that's a long ways away. I mean, the fact that, like, the coronavirus, you know, depression has destroyed many oil and gas companies or the fact that the world is so awash in oil and gas that it's de that it's resulted in in the bankruptcies and the consolidations that you've seen in the industry. That's just that doesn't have anything to do with energy transitions. I mean, in some ways, what it does is it just it just shows how difficult it will be to replace petroleum and natural gas because of their high power densities in the case of petroleum. And then, of course, because there are environmental benefits in the case of natural gas. So for me, I just kind of go, we're clearly in for another century at least of gas and petroleum, probably that much. Um, it's not, there's not going to be, they're not going to regulate their way out of from petroleum to electric cars or something. When we return, I want to get back on that topic. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, who is the author of Apocalypse Never, fast-selling book that's out right now. You can get it at Amazon. Michael, before the break, you were talking about that we are not going to get off of uh, fossil fuels, at least for a century. Can we get back on that topic? I'd like for you to finish your thoughts on the chapter that you have on the energy transition. Sure. So, I mean, I think if you're looking at energy, you know, so you look at past energy transitions to think about future energy transitions. And so the tr- the first thing is that the trend is clearly towards more energy-dense fuels. So that's why I don't think we are ever going to transition back towards energy-dilute fuels, namely renewables. Solar and wind farms require three to four to hundred times more land than a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant, and that means there's huge costs, and that doesn't even deal with the unreliability. So I think that we should and will eventually transition from fossil fuels to nuclear, not to renewables, and that that transition will look similar to the transitions from coal to petroleum, coal to natural gas, wood to coal, and those transitions all took hundreds of years. I mean, we're in a fast transition right now from coal to natural gas. Anybody that studies energy statistics over 100-year, 200-year timeframes knows that the speed at which coal has been replaced by natural gas in the United States is really fast. Um, fast. So we're clearly, it's, it's not like these transitions occur in some smooth way. They're lumpy and disruptive, just like all technological changes. So, yeah, I mean, we're transitioning from uh, coal to natural gas. Um, That's going to take decades. There's still some countries for whom it may be cheaper still to do coal, but for the most part, it looks like countries are going to be able to do a lot of natural gas, which is great news from an environmental point of view. And then the issue of petroleum. So to understand the the past energy transitions from coal to petroleum or uh, even wood to coal, that these are energy transitions where the end-use technology, which is the car, the automobile, in the case of petroleum, or it was the oil-powered ships and trains, that those are driving much of those transitions. And so, you know, you kind of go, is the Tesla electric car a model for future vehicles? I don't think so. It's material, it's rematerialized the car. The car is much heavier than, than existing uh, petroleum-fueled cars. And then there's uh, there's the range problems, which we've never solved. Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that if it were to be electric cars, and I'm not I'm not saying it couldn't be or that there's no scenario in which it could be because it, there's, you know, I could be wrong. But if we do transition to electric cars, it would, I think you'd have to see some disruptive end use of those electric vehicles that I don't think would follow the traditional car model. In other words, I don't think we're going to have we're going to everybody's car is going to be like a Tesla electric car because of the high cost and the range problems and the bulkiness and the that material intensity of it. Mm-hmm. But if you have like a fleet of electric cars that operated, you know, like Uber, like, you know, but driverless sure. Uber kind of cars, I could potentially see it. But we're not really seeing that even happening. So, well, so I that, just think, you know, anyway, go ahead. So, so that, that begs the question then. Uh, does solar and wind have a place in the energy transition? Is there a place that it does work? Well, it works. It works in my my wife's garden and <laughs> in the backyard. I mean, I'm not like against solar and wind. Mm. If you want to buy solar panels, um, but I just don't. I don't know why we would be killing 
endangered species, including our Joshua tree and desert tortoises in California for environmental reasons. That doesn't make any sense. Sure. It makes sense as a religious ritual, which is basically what it is. Mm -hmm. um, these large solar and wind farms. And I also think it's worked for the natural gas industry as a kind of greenwashing. You know, they've been using solar and wind as a way to basically shut down nuclear and to some extent coal plants in the name of the environment because people think renewables are good for the environment. And the reason they think they're good for the environment is just because they think they're more natural, which is just silly. You know, people just think solar, people think sunlight is more natural than uranium, which is just dumb. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, I think it's a fad. It's also a religion. I think it's the dominant religion of the elite. You know, both the, you know, the, so I think there's both a financial, my book talks about the motivations are power, money, and religion. And people are like, do you really, you know, someone's asked me, they kind of go, are they people pretending, you know, is like the, you know, it's like the secretary general of the United Nations, is he pretending to, no, it's this religion. It's, it's like saying, it would be like asking, did the conquistadors from Spain who went to Mexico and Peru and other countries, were they pretending to be Catholic? No, but that didn't stop them from like, you know, trying to make money or trying to find gold. Yeah. <laughs> and that's basically what's happening on renewables. Go ahead. So it, this is a, a, going to be a, a short answer here, but I'm familiar with a lot of the, your work around uh nuclear energy, which I found just fascinating uh, and all the work around that. One of the things that you say in the book is the energy that I would use in my lifetime uh, could be produced from uranium that could fit inside of a Coke can. Uh, we have a very, it'd be a short answer before we can come back and maybe complete it. But how do you calculate that? What's going on there? Well, the difference between, uh, yeah, so just a Coke can of uranium can provide all the energy I need for my entire life, including all of my energy intensive jet fuel. And that's just explained by energy density, the much higher levels of energy density in that lump of uranium than in a lump of coal. Although just to say it more accurately, you're burning the coal. So you're splitting the molecules and the coal, but in the uranium, you're splitting the atoms. And so you're just releasing gigantically larger quantities, million times more heat um, by breaking those atomic bonds than you are by breaking those molecular bonds. Well, Mike, with that, let's take a break. I want to come back to your book, but I did want to also tell you in the, your chapter of uh, destroying the environment to clean the earth was a very interesting chapter to me. And I do encourage your listeners to get your book because in that one, you go into great detail on the problem that the wind farms are facing with extinction of many birds, including bats, which are vital to us, birds, and of course, uh, bald eagles. So it's a very, very interesting chapter as well uh, in which you go into the details. And it, they're all over Texas, so I do encourage people to read the book because it'll help them understand a little bit more about what's really something, what we should be thinking about when we're looking at pushing a lot more wind farms out. I'm not knocking them, I'm just saying we should be considering all things, and one of them is uh, the threat to our wildlife. You're listening to In the Old Pets Radio Show. We'll be right back. Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Oilfield Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oilfield parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. 
Write down this number, Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. For the past 50 years, the people at Bulwark FR have served as the relentless protectors of workers in the oil and gas industry, but never as relentless as right now. That's because for the first time in decades, free to double down on flame-resistant apparel that's designed to understand your workday and your world. See how they're finally at full power for you at BulwarkIndependence.com. That's Bulwark spelled B-U-L-W-A-R-K, Independence.com. Welcome back to In the All Pets Radio Show. I'm David Blackman, my co-host Kim Bellotto, and co-host Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy, with our special guest, Mike Schellenberger, a brilliant uh, environmental energy author of several books and uh, writer all over the American news media. Michael, um, coming back into this final segment, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of current events. We, we've had major hurricane hit the Texas coast again uh, in August. Hurricane Laura, it's the third major hurricane in four years that has hit the Port Arthur, Beaumont area. And I was so glad to hear you talking about the religion of climate change. I've been writing that for 25 years myself. Um, one of the, the bits of dogma of that religion is that climate change is causing the frequency and intensity of major hurricanes uh, in the Atlantic and Pacific basins to intensify, and I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. I know you've addressed it in your writing, and uh, is that really something that's happening as a part of climate change? Right, so this is, I think, just one of the most um, deceitful efforts around climate change. It's been going on for at least 31 years, 32 years. So in 1988, you know, they manipulated the air conditioning systems in Washington, D.C.'s in right. Congress. Two senators did to make the hearing room hotter. So obviously we're, you know, as biological creatures, we're oriented towards the weather. And so the weather is always news, right? And it's always been news and it will always be news. And so climate activists have basically tried to point to the weather as evidence of climate change or as evidence that things are getting worse I mean, this is the thing I keep stressing. If all you need to know about climate change, there's only two, two things you need to know. The most important two things are deaths from natural disasters have been going down and they've been gone down 90%. And there's no scenario, but I'm about to write something that says there's no scenario for that trend to reverse itself. There's no scientific scenario. There's science fiction, but there's no reason to think that we're going to see an increase in deaths from natural disasters or disease, infectious disease, COVID obviously being you know, uh, a once in a century event, but deaths from an infectious disease have been going down. So they leave that out. And I was testifying in front of Congress a couple of weeks ago, and I explained to the members of the, the hearing, I said, look, I don't know if you all understand, but when people talk about climate change increasing deaths from natural disasters or disease, they're saying against all else being equal. In other words, against some scenario where there was no change in temperature. Well, yeah, but all else is not equal. And the change in temperature is a consequence of energy consumption, which has 
which has driven down the deaths from natural disasters and right. has reduced the dis deaths from disease. So you can't have it that way. You have to understand that what they're talking about is against a hypothetical. I mean, if it were up to me, sure. You know, if all else, I don't, we would rather not have any change in the temperature, but that's because we've constructed a whole civilization around this temperature. But that's not an option. And first of all, it's not even clear it was an option without humans causing climate change. Um, you know, it might have gotten a lot colder. So, you know, I think it's been very manipulative. You know, I, I think conservatives and Republicans are have done it too, though I think in some ways it's been more of a reaction, you know, like the like the pointing right. to snow in winter. Virtue signaling, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, conservatives kind of respond by saying it's winter, so there's no climate change. I mean, that's just as kind of ridiculous. So I just think both sides have done it. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, I think you can find, we can find um, more heat waves, longer fire season in California, you can find some, in, some the scientists say they can find, and I have no reason to doubt them, some faster wind speeds and some hurricanes. But, but in terms of the impacts, in terms of the things that you care about, which is deaths, first and foremost, but also costs, um, things have been getting better, not worse. And so yeah. I, I just think that that removing that context from people is really at the heart of the of the scare campaign. Well, you mentioned California, and that, that brings me to my next question. In August, we have these weeks on end, frankly, of rolling blackouts in California. Many in the news media, many policymakers in California attempted to blame all of that on the, the, the wildfires that California has every year. But really, is that really what caused the reason was behind those blackouts? Wasn't the real reason that it all started different than, than the fires themselves? Right. So there's two there's two sets of blackouts. I mean, the first was the blackouts last fall, which were forced because forced because we had not spent the money that we should have spent on keeping the vegetation from right. touching the electrical wires. Um, we spent that money on renewables instead. We spent it on renewables, and then we saw our electricity prices go up six times more than they went up in the rest of the United States over the last decade. Yeah. So that's that. And then, and then lo and behold, um, unreliable electricity makes electricity unreliable. Who would have thought of it? <laughs> Who would have thought of it? And so in California, we almost had blackouts, very, very out of control, what they call cascading failures. Um, which is just what it sounds like. And that was because there's a, the religion, this, is, this shows the degree to which the religion has taken hold among the ruling class in California. The ruling elites persuaded themselves that they didn't need, oh, all this nuclear power plants or natural gas plants, that they could run the state on solar panels and batteries. Well, that that was spectacularly disproven. And so what we saw for the first time was the governor acknowledge that reliability is a problem with renewables, which sounds like ridiculous, but that's progress out here that you would even it acknowledge is, so. that there's problems right. with, with reliability. So I think renewables are actually headed for a pretty serious crisis. I think there's a lot of opt or a lot of feigned optimism in that community around the election of Biden around subsidies, but you got to remember that like renewables have ground to a halt. Wind has basically ground to a halt in Germany, not because they don't have the subsidies, but because the citizen activism and the environmental activism has blocked uh, the construction of transmission lines and new wind farms. 
Right. So, and that's happening in the United States as well. I mean, there's a very powerful movement in Nebraska to stop this big transmission line from going in, led <laughs> by Native Americans and homeowners and environmentalists. And that really puts a, so I just think that the land use and the unreliability, the high land use and unreliable renewables means that their days are numbered. Well, Michael, thank you for coming in and talking to us a little bit about your book. I do want to give you an opportunity to tell us where to get your book. I, I got your book off of Amazon, but I want you to close with uh, where can our listeners grab your book? Because this is just touching the tip of all of the information that's in your books, whether you want to know about when, what's happening in California, nuclear. And if you really want to get informed on the topic of energy, your book is one of the best books. So where can our listeners go and uh, grab a copy? Well, I'm happy to say the book is back in stock. It was out of stock at Amazon for a few, several weeks. We're actually in our sixth printing. It's a bestseller in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, so Amazon's great. Your local bookstore is great. Thank you. And, you know, people can follow me, follow me on Twitter, Schellenberger MD, and also on Facebook. So, yeah, I'd love to stay in touch and I'd love to come back on the show um, and we can keep the conversation going. You got it. Again, thank you for writing such a wonderful and insightful book. Everybody go Google on Amazon, Apocalypse Never. Thank you, Michael, once again for joining in the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. 